Welcome to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. I'm Adam A. Donaldson of Guelph Politico, and joining me is... Scotty Hertz. Uh, Adam, I think uh, we'll probably be getting the call soon now that uh, Captain Kirk's been up. Maybe after, let's say, Sulu and Janeway go, you and I have to be next. (laughs) They're just going to work through the list, right? I'm going to hard pass that because I don't want to be... In, in, indebted to Bezos, so I, I've been watching. I was watching that all day Wednesday, not intentionally. It's just it was nonstop coverage on the news, and I was just like getting madder and madder because you know we have another boiled water advice. Actually, not even a boiled water advisor because the water in a Callowitz smells like gasoline, and uh, uh, bottled water is scarce. And so it's like that seems like something Jeff Bezos could solve with like the. Um, with, with the pocket change left over from change, building yeah. his penis rocket, so it. it Woo. <laughs> Tell me it doesn't look like a penis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, I. They should just call it. Anyway, let's not get into I mean, that. it's. <laughs> we'll leave that there. Open... Archaeologists are going to have a heyday in there. Uh, open Sources is CFRU's political and current affairs discussion show. And you can find us here every Thursday at 5 p.m. as we talk about the latest news items from Guelph, Ontario, Canada, and around the world. And sometimes we interview local newsmakers and politicians, which this week will be Ward 5 City Councilor Leanne Caron who will spend about 23 minutes talking to us about heritage, demolition by neglect, and procedural hiccups. So strap in for that. Uh, That will be at the bottom of the hour. Before that, we're going to talk about the growing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan and how Western countries are trying to help out without looking like they're supporting the Taliban. But first, there are many healthcare establishments in the country that have now reached a deadline for vaccine mandates for staff. Uh, including our own Guelph General Hospital, where 31 staff members have been given suspension notices. I heard on the news, uh, the local news, that's about 250 all in for Waterloo region and Wellington County. Uh, when you take into account all the hospitals, um, about 250 uh, workers who have been given um, notice that uh, they are suspended until they decide to get their shots. Which isn't too bad numerically, and it sounds like some of them will probably cave. Uh, I think what's missing from this, and I would love to know, and I know due to privacy reasons they can't reveal it, they're just saying staff. Mm -hmm. So my question is, how many of them are uh, frontline nursing, even doctors? I'm sure most of them are vaccinated. They're they're not making the distinction between people uh, who are directly involved with healthcare, but then there's also the people in the coffee shop and the cleaners in that. I suspect that a number of these people are those people. It's speculative. Like it's not, they make it sound like us, like the nurses are saying no, but I don't think that's necessarily the case. However, in Quebec, I heard uh, the health minister just before airtime there and he sounded terrible. Mm. Uh just, I guess, just from talking, because it sounded the Quebec uh, deadline was supposed to be the end of the of the week. It was like by Friday you're all supposed to be vaccinated, but their number is something in the range of twenty five thousand people are not compliant, mm-hmm. and they finally figured that oh well we can't really we can't really do that. So they are getting a bit of an extension, and I believe that is sort of what's happening with the people here, and that they are getting they're off without pay, but they are getting some time. Um, so it's not like the deadline has moved. It's just, it's the goalpost has moved a, a bit, uh, be it, well, not, not getting paid for whatever the period is, is, is 
bad enough, I would imagine. But as to whether it'll be interesting to see how many of them eventually do comply. And I believe it'll be some. Well, this is one of those situations where there are kind of no certainties because it's not a province wide thing. Each institution or each like hospital network, if they have multiple locations or um, like setting their own deadlines and having their own procedures, if, if it's a significant number of staff, I mean, in our region, it's kind of, most hospitals are seeing like between 30 and 50, I think at Grand River, it was closer to 150. And to answer your question about like, who are they? Uh, the Guelph today broke down. Uh, it was 32 of clerical staff and 25 non-clerical staff. So that, again, that's oh, not so. terribly specific, but it gives you some idea of who... I mean, so it's kind of like evenly split between the clerical and non-clerical. So, I mean, these, it just seems like these are like outliers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it might be people who are just like, I don't have time because I'm working my ass off at the hospital. <laughs> um, well, yeah, and that's true. Yeah, to a degree. Yeah. And it could be just, you know, it could be like people who are just need that shove. And it's just like, okay, fine. I'll go get like, or one of these, like, just completely contrarian people it's like look i like 98 percent of the people at the hospital do we all have to do it or maybe they're masking like fear of needles or something i mean it's just it's not i i think it's important to note i don't think they're all anti-vaxxers no. um i'm not sure how far you can get working in the medical system if you are like that big a science skeptic at least on the clinical side i mean i can understand maybe someone who doesn't necessarily work in the science side of of the hospitals might but I, I i again that kind of attitude just does not seem as pervasive generally i mean yes when you see a couple of hundred anti-vaxxers protesting in front of the scotia bank arena mm-hmm. you you sort of think it, it's it's kind of a more powerful movement than that but i'm not so sure that it's that powerful in our at least in our healthcare facilities anyway no and we've talked about that before that that's a traveling circus sideshow with people that come from all over and go to all that's like the grateful dead but for anti-vaxxers <laughs> right and i'm gonna go here and i'm gonna go there mm-hmm. but yeah it's um well the thing is and if somebody is adamant either for political or faith reasons we're gonna hear about it right it's mm-hmm. gonna be they will seek out the media that they hate so much and become a top story <laughs> in the area, right? That's that's almost a guarantee. I'm thinking particularly, I can't remember the exact details of the woman that was a in charge of food services at a long-term care home out, uh, I think it was Waterloo Way. And the then the sub headline was, she doesn't know what she's going to do. It's like, well, you could get vaccinated. <laughs> you wouldn't have this problem. Although, and I don't know if you heard about that, I'm the one in... Uh, Toronto Copernicus Lodge, which is a, a large uh, long-term care home, a private one that um, focuses, I think it may exclusively be Polish. Mm-hmm. Their staff losses 36% of the staff have said, no, we're just, we're not doing this. Some of them, however, have relented, I learned. Uh, I think it's somewhere in the range of 25% of those are like, oh, well, okay, I'll just do it. So that, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a fairly big outage. And of course, that's the one we hear about. Um, right. And and the sort of squeaky wheels are like, I'm not going to do it for these reasons. And you end up in the paper and that's, you end up without a job. Um, now, I mean, there are cases 
where I, case is probably an unfortunate choice of language, but there are there are, there are instances of people. Uh, I'm thinking particularly of, of teachers in other areas who are who are settling for the uh, PCR test, mm-hmm. which seems to be an acceptable workaround right now mm-hmm. uh, for people with ex- legitimate exemptions, which are difficult to get. Uh, well, they're I know, supposed to be yeah. supposed to be, but I know that I you know it sounds like in most cases they're just testing themselves twice a week. I think an improvement there would be for you to take a rapid test every day. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure why that isn't happening. I don't know if some of that is the price. I don't even see that meme making the rounds where rapid tests in Germany are a buck, but rapid tests in Ontario are forty dollars, and you have to go to a shopper's drug mart. Now that's not completely true, right? You can. Mm-hmm. There are people getting handed rapid tests and saying, "Okay, do this," but I know in some instances they need to. Um, even though they're getting rapid testing and it's not through shopper's drug mart, they ha- it has to be in the presence of somebody else. They, yeah. they do that at, at uh, here at U of G. I'm saying here. Sorry, we're not physically there. I'm just there so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's uh, the the thing with the test is um, you have to kind of have the hookup. Like the rapid tests are made easy to get um through like various government initiatives and programs and things but if you're just like random joe schmo and you want to get a test that's that's significantly harder um the thing with the that long-term care home you mentioned like predominantly polish um i've seen this in like some of the anti-vax people i've talked to like when you go to these kind of like rallies and meetings and things like people from communist formerly communist areas are like or currently communist areas for them and are, are particularly susceptible to this kind of thing. And that's because they listen to the people who are talking about like uh, authoritarianism and grand social credit hegemony and, and all this kind of stuff that like, like getting a vaccine and wearing a mask. Those are like the, you know, the, the beginnings of some grand authoritarian takeover of Canada. And because they come from, a place where that actually happened they they are, are somewhat more willing to believe that but that plays into the other thing which is like the charlatans and the the hucksters and there there's a case in calgary the calgary children's hospital two doctors there writing uh separate letters about how well we think the vaccines are experimental and we shouldn't be forcing everyone to get one oh, and boy. one of the doctors his family he and his family are fully vaccinated so it's like who are these letters for? Are you trying to get some like cheap publicity from this? And it, it further like cements the, the anti or the vaccine hesitant sentiment because anyone who has the, uh, the salutation doctor and has a relatively medically related field um, automatically becomes a hero to the movement, no matter like what they're trying to do. Like if you're trying to like get a little buzz for yourself being a contrarian, or whether you genuinely, genuinely believe some of the vaccine hesitant hysteria, um, you're kind of doing more harm than good. So I mean, there are just like there are so many factors involved with this that you just kind of can't really dig past with the, the two minute news blurb <laughs> that's like this many people in your hospital are not vaccinated or, or what have you. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think we wanted to shed some light on that. 
Yeah, and we have one in town too that's widely quoted. I'm not going to quote him or mention his name, but yeah, it's the same thing. <laughs> they lock onto something that this person says, and then they become a meme and they become widely spread. Mm-hmm. And then somebody will do a two minute rant in their car, uh, and then they end up on sorryantivaxer.com uh, with a tube in their neck, which seems to be happening more and more. I mean, this a lot is- of the a- adamant anti-vaxxers are going down, and that's not that that's. You know, it's not because of their rights being infringed upon that. It's because there's because there's a pandemic and the uh, the plague is coming for them. Right. That it's that simple, regardless of your rights. This thing will target you. So it's it, it is that simple. I mean, maybe I'm oversimplifying. I don't know. But it's like my rights, my rights. It's like, well, what are your rights with a disease that doesn't care about your rights? Well, I mean, that's such a great point, too. It's like, how many times do we have to see these like heroes of the anti-vaccination, anti-lockdown movement, like people like people who are just like big on Facebook or people who are like talk radio people who, you know, end up in the hospital or, you know, with a tube in their throat or dead. You know, how many times do you have to see these people go to the hospital and 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 then you know turn the camera on themselves and go, this is terrible. Go get your shots while you still can. I mean, are, do you think these people are sort of like being brainwashed, like being picked off one at a time? Like, I don't know, maybe. But it's just, you know. I guess how 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 long till the message finally takes effect? Yeah, it is the when will they ever learn moment, mm-hmm. right? And that that is the great question. So we'll see how the numbers play out in the next few weeks in terms of healthcare mm-hmm. and who's getting jabbed mm-hmm. or not. And, yes. <laughs> and speaking of, will they ever learn? Uh, we're going to Afghanistan next. Um, not physically, but uh, in our minds. Uh, there's been a G20 meeting this week. Uh, various uh, leaders trying to decide about getting humanitarian aid to Afghanistan. There is a huge humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan, uh, resource scarcity. I mean, we think we're suffering with uh, a couple of bare shelves. Well, uh, if you are lucky enough to still have a job in Afghanistan, if you're lucky enough to still be getting paid for that job, and if you're lucky enough that your bank is still open, you can only withdraw $200 US per week from your bank. A lot of people are selling their goods. Uh, There's something called the flea market of despair, um, where people are gathering along this one roadway in Kabul to sell their their things so they can get money to buy food, which is also scarce. And uh, some predictions are saying that uh, 97% of the Afghan population will be in poverty by the end of 2022, which starts in less than three months, in case you hadn't forgotten. Uh, So curiously, uh, not a lot of news coverage of the humanitarian uh, crisis in Afghanistan now that all the soldiers are gone. No, what does come up is, like you mentioned, the economic angle, the economy is collapsing, but we're not getting to, they're not, they're not really concentrating on the root causes, which we know, I mean, there's a lot this entire century. um, (laughs) There are people that that are, um, seem to be very, will take any opportunity to pick on the, the U.S. right and say, well, it's the U. It's the it's America's fault. They've caused this. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
now the U.S. has pulled out, we're in this situation. The Taliban are not good. <laughs> I know that mm-hmm. sounds a bit soft, yeah. but really underselling you, it. You can't say, well, the U.S. are gone. That's great. Well, now it's the Taliban. It's like the Taliban are not an improvement. They're trying this kinder, gentler approach, supposedly to pretend to be diplomatic. They don't have, there's no experience there, right? Mm-hmm. There's no, they, they don't know how to run. Well, they do know how to run a state, but they're running it their way, which involves uh, mass oppression, the beating and killing of people that they don't like, uh, mm-hmm. w- women and girls not going to school after what grade six is it? It's like okay, you're not, you're you're just you're just not you, you're staying home because mm-hmm. this is this is our version of Islam. You can stay home. It's Sharia law. You have to listen to us. And something else too that I, I saw was they have something called the Eleven Rules for Journalists. I didn't get too deep into the dive, but they just. <laughs> uh, are still beating on journalists. They see this is the difference. This is the kinder, gentler Taliban. They don't just kill them outright now. They'll give them a good beating. Mm-hmm. Same with people in the LGBT community. And this this is supposed to be an improvement, right? So, yeah, not good is a bit of an understatement. That's not to say that it was right for the U.S. to be there, because as we know, where where did they find Osama bin Laden? It wasn't in Afghanistan at all, right? Yeah. Now there's a connection between. <laughs> Pakistan, Afghanistan, in that area, but that it, it's a lot of this stuff is just kind of being forgotten, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, well, we need to, we need to. Of course, they need to create some sort of relationship with the Taliban, but none of them, including the U.S., European community. I think China and Russia stayed out of this G20 conversation, right? I don't know. I don't know what yeah. their angle is. Uh, well, Putin. But, so they're going to chuck Putin and Xi didn't chuck, show up. They sent they sent some guys though. Yeah, so they're going to chuck money at it which will work for a time. They chucked money at the trillion dollar war. Uh, that didn't work. So now it's like a billion here, however much there, uh, food aid among other things. And that will prop it up for a time. But it, I, I personally don't think it's going to get any better. Anytime no. soon. No. Oh. And you're talking about like beating reporters. It unfortunately reminded me a bit of this old Rowan Atkinson bit about fatal beatings. But um, you know, if you're, if you'd given your son a fatal beating uh, before he got to school, you would have been better off, but um, Google that's later. A, yeah. That's a little gallows. <laughs> that's a little yeah. gallows humor. I hope it's yeah. on YouTube, but um, it, it's just, it, the situation is, it's so complicated because the, Afghans have secu- relative security now, like because the insurgency is over, because the insurgents won, and the people who in- who came into the country are gone. At the same time, though, they have ISIS K. ISIS K is still like a-, a potential threat, even to the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you know, a world of like rich countries who are like we want to help out in some way, um, but they don't want to be seen as assisting the Taliban or acknowledging the Taliban. Um, they're not a hundred percent sure. Like so, some people make the points like, well, how do we know this aid is going to get to the people? It's like, well, how did you know the aid was going to get to the people before? Because in often cases it didn't, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of corruption in the quote unquote free Afghanistan that uh, people don't want to talk about. But, you know, at the same time, people are starving. People are in need of resources. Um, it's it's just like I, I worry that people are going to get so bogged down in the 
like we can't acknowledge the Taliban that we're just going to ignore people and not getting these people humanitarian aid is one sure one surefire way to ensure the continuation of a, of a Taliban like regime in Afghanistan for years to come because people are going to you know, if you, the West doesn't help people, you're just going to build resentment towards the West. It's like, oh, there are you rich fools living out in the West uh, part of the planet, ignoring us poor, starving folk in Afghanistan. I mean, that's kind of how the <laughs> Al Qaeda and <laughs> Taliban were. I mean, that's not the only reasons why, but it certainly contributes to um, a certain apathy and animosity towards the West. And it, it needs to be figured out fast. The concern, though, is yeah. like, whereas you know, there was all sorts of like political pressure and pressure from the media to, you know, get people out of Afghanistan Um, in those kind of hurly burly days of the pullout. um, There's almost nothing now. I mean, the fact that the G20 meeting happened this week got some attention, but it certainly didn't get like wall to wall attention that, the pullout did it's just we, we seem fundamentally unable to cover an issue unless there's a crisis which again yeah. is more one of the reasons why i think we were interested in talking about it this week is you know uh the, the crisis i mean there, there is a crisis but it's not like a a kind of photogenic crisis the same way as planes taking off from an airport with you know hundreds of people running behind it so yeah and that's part of the problem and then they need to find the organization or start it's you can't start these things from scratch, whether mm. it's the Red Crescent or somebody that can bridge the gap mm-hmm. and take care of it. And it may be time for the Red Crescent or I'm just I'm not picking on the Red Crescent. But I'm saying there is a potential organization that could step up and create the bridge between. Well, do you think about the U.S. has just left, right? The mm-hmm. the, you know, your enemy has left and now you're, you have to kind of make a certain kind of peace with them. But the one thing that they have in common, the U.S. and actually probably the world is that they all hate Daesh, ISIS. They hate ISIS. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I mean, I see the Taliban as like a, a milder version of ISIS. Right. This is just my opinion in that the root is the same. You know, when you, when you have any nation or group of people that have religious beliefs, like active religious police, as I'd mentioned before, they were the ones who would just go around and smack people around. But now it's like, what is it now? Please embrace Sharia. Uh, don't have a beer, don't smoke, have a nice day. I don't think so, right? Mm-hmm. So they need to find the the group or groups that can get in there and and stick handle all of that and see if they can alleviate the crisis. But yeah, the, uh, the, the, the common hatred of ISIS, and it would be weird. And I think there was a point at the end, toward the end there, where the US and the Taliban were fighting ISIS together. Mm-hmm. In this strange sort of like almost movie-like situation where it's like, oh, here they are. The enemy of the enemy is is everybody's enemy. But this, the, the U.S. wants the guarantee, and I think this is the only thing they're asking of them, is that is anyone or any group going to come out of Afghanistan like bin Laden and al-Qaeda and come after the U.S.? And if they can get assurances that that's not going to happen, I think they're going to overlook a lot of stuff which is something that America is known for, right? It's like, well, if you're, yeah. if you're, if you're going to do this dirty work for us, then we will not necessarily look the other way, but we're not, we're also not going to come after you. So you just make sure that so-and-so behaves, whoever it is, take your pick over the century, over the years, right? Then well, that's lo- fine. Yeah. And that will, that will last for a while until something does come out of there, whether it's a strain of ISIS or whomever, 
Al Qaeda 2022, whatever comes out of there, mm-hmm. if it is proven to come out of there, then there will be a problem again in that, like of that structure of that type. Right. I mean, it remains to be seen. Like Al Qaeda was kind of like a new combination of circumstance and like Bin Laden, who was like grew up with every possible privilege, but was Saudi was, though. Yeah, right? he was. He was. This is Saudi, forgotten. Yeah. <laughs> he's yeah. not an Afghan. He's not, no, he's not. He wasn't yeah. Afghan. He was Saudi. He, yeah. he, you know, he was a prince essentially, and like grew up with every possible advantage. Like he was well educated, um, and you know something clearly something snapped along the way that made him decide to go into a life of terrorism. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that there's no opportunity at all, but you know, Al Qaeda was a a unique circumstance of, you know, timing and uh, people with resources. I mean, what's, what are the politics in Saudi Arabia right now? That's a tough question. It's like, um, because, you know, a lot of these big, Governments, uh, everything in in the Middle East, are, like are, are sort of seen with skepticism too. People are casting a worry at Saudi Arabia for like all manner of things, being too cozy with the U.S. Uh, you know, stuff going on in Yemen. It's the the political picture today is very different than it was twenty years ago. None of that is say is like I think the Taliban being in charge of Afghanistan is a good thing. It definitely is not, but um, I think people need to start like start seriously thinking about what dealing with uh, the Taliban as a state actor might look like um, in order to help the people who were there. You know, we can't afford to have the George W. Bush point of view. It's like, well, if you're not my friend, you're my enemy and just have this sort of like bifurcated world of friends and enemies. It's sometimes you got to deal with the person who's at the table. And if nothing else, the Taliban are at the table. And I mean, that, Again, not to say that the Taliban are good, but can they be encouraged to be better? Um, they can if they're at the table. They can't if they're not. Yeah, and that is a great question. I think I think the current administration has a better handle on diplomacy in general than anyone or anybody in, and I mean all of them in the Trump era, right? <laughs> <laughs> like Biden could know the game mm-hmm. a bit better, even though it was Trump that said, we have to get out of there. So. I'm not, it's not credit where credit's due here, but he was the one, right? Whether we like it or not, was the one this needs to end. <laughs> and everybody's like, wants to sort of give him credit, but at the same time, it's like, what? You know, I mean, the, the tr- broken clock is right <laughs> twice a day, right? So Trump was in favor of getting out of Afghanistan before it was cool. Um, yeah. So maybe we'll. Maybe we'll give him that he much credit. He wasn't a broken clock. He was a smashed clock. He, but, yeah. he wasn't a visionary, but I mean, he did occasionally burp out a good idea or two anyway. We're going to take a quick break and come back with our interview with uh, Councillor Karan. You're listening to Open Sources Guelph here on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio.
That was our Royal Cat Records pick of the week. Royal Cat Records, 21 Mac Donnell in the downtown, the Little Big Record Shop. And that song from oh, a few years ago by a band called Spirit of the West. <laughs> and the song and the album are both called Save This House. <laughs> a timely tune, even though it's 30 years old, because Adam going to tell you. <laughs> why <laughs> there's yeah there's always a house to save somewhere so i can't believe it's been this long since we played a song that mentioned cronkite like that's just you know he's, anyway he's been gone for a while yeah uh yes if you've been following the news uh there was a heritage home at 797 victoria road north uh it was the short raid farmstead it was built in 1840 uh, so it has been around for a while and uh, unfortunately it had to be demolished. Uh, it, the situation is actually rather complicated as you'll hear from the interview that there were, that there, there were a number of buildings on this property that have been over the summer burnt down one at a time. And so it, it, the, the last building was the farmhouse itself. Uh, the matter came before council in a closed session and uh, council uh, voted to demolish it. Um, there have been some hiccups along the way, including one emergency meeting about whether or not the matter should be reopened so that Heritage Guelph could have feedback. And then another emergency meeting to decide if what was decided at that emergency meeting was what actually happened. Confused? I don't blame you. That's why we <laughs> wanted to have Leanne Caron on the show to talk about that. Uh, she is essentially Guelph's Minister of Heritage, although we don't have such a position. It's kind of <laughs> unofficial, but uh, I think she takes that as a compliment and a responsibility just the same. So uh, without further ado, let's talk to Leanne Caron. So Leanne Caron, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Always a pleasure. Well, we'll see when we get into the serious questions here. But um, I, I guess like the first kind of most essential question is after an in-camera meeting, after two emergency meetings, can people trust that city council knows what it's voting for when they're voting for it? I mean, this is kind of an extreme example. It's not like approving minutes or anything like that, but... I mean, we had two meetings where council tried to understand the decision it made, and it was a decision largely in camera where the public couldn't proctor it for themselves. And that's an excellent question. I think that's the crux of, um, of why this issue is getting legs in the community, is that so much of what happened happened behind closed doors. So there's a lot of mystery to that. Um, I would say 99% of the time, um, we are behind closed doors uh, for all the right reasons. This is the 1%, uh, in my opinion. Uh, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not a governance expert, but something didn't seem right with me from the very beginning. And, and on September the 27th, before we went into closed session, I questioned that um, exact thing is, is why is there not a public portion to the agenda? Our normal process, if a matter is enclosed, is that we have a public report. Um, it's a modified report, but it gives the public uh, the information about what we're discussing, uh, background information that's not subject to closed um, session. So for example, the heritage attributes of 797 Victoria Road, there's nothing, there's nothing secret about that. I, I, it's perfectly public that it's on the Heritage Register, that when it was built, who it was built by, none of that should have been in public session. 
And then what we do, and, and advice from the fire chief is also not subject to um, closed session privilege. It's advice from legal, absolutely, and for all the right reasons. Um, but uh, um, when we went into closed session, there should have been a public agenda to accompany it. And then we should have opened it in public session. And then for legal advice, um, gone into closed session and come back out to resume the debate. So I have a lot of concerns regarding that. Um, and, uh, and, and so it appears does the public. Now, the report has been made public, which is great. I, I moved that on October 6th to make sure that it got into the public realm. And the public can judge for themselves whether the information contained in the report should have been made public. I think if it had been made public, the outcome would have been different. I wanted to ask about that because I, as, as we're talking, the report has been made public. I, I got a chance to read it because it was not very long. I think it was seven pages. And I did a count to see how many times the report noted something was redacted. There were three. Mm -hmm. There were two paragraphs in the line. So it doesn't seem like this was especially classified. Like it wasn't about like sources and methods to borrow a phrase, right? It, it, it there, there, it, it feels like this could have been very easily developed into a public report that could have brought information forward uh, to begin with. So, I mean, why wasn't it? Well, and I agree. Uh, uh, and that is our normal process is, is we, in matters such as these, normally have a public report. Um, the three sections that were removed are legal advice and, in my opinion, are not material to to the decision and the recommendations. At the very least, the recommendations should have been public. Um, and so the public could at least see what it is that we were, we were discussing in a, in a more transparent way. Uh, and I think it begs the question, and, and again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not seeking blame. I am not seeking uh, um, any kind of, of, um, of action. I don't think that there's one single individual who, who on this file um, acted or failed to act. Uh, I think it's multiple, multiple layers. Uh, and I wouldn't say that it was without good intention because I think that if you read the cover memo that staff um, put out when they released the public report, um, that cover mem memo was not directed by council. That was staff's addition to the public report. Um, they um, defended their actions by saying that they felt that um, making it public may have put the, in their, in their opinion, uh, put the property at further risk. Mm. And that was the reason why the details were not, were not made public. Um, I'm of an opposite opinion. I think more eyes on a property actually reduces risk. Uh, in fact, once it did become a public on the 27th, um, community organizations, uh, Guelph Off-Road Bicycling Association, Guelph Hiking Trail Club, um, people were actively watching the property and, and using the property. And eyes on the street is the best security for, uh, for a property at risk. Now, that is not to say, and I, I need to put on the table, that I have great respect for our fire chief. Um, uh, we have a long history and I, I respect his authority. I respect his professional um, experience um, and his intent to protect his firefighters and the public. I have, I, I don't, I, I want to make that very clear. And any insinuation that, that any member of council would 
put our first responders at risk, especially me, or if I or put, put the public in harm's way, I, I consider that slander. And I've, I've heard that from a few counselors that, you know, having an alternate opinion puts the public at risk. And I take, I take offense to that. But section 15 of the act is very, very clear about alternatives that the, the fire chief had under um, uh, immediate threat to life. And uh, if a fire chief assesses a property and believes that there is an immediate threat to life, and that's the terminology used in, in the act, there are eight options available. And one is to remove persons on the land and premises, to post a fire watch, remove combustibles or explosive material or anything that constitutes a fire menace, dispose of material, uh, eliminate ignition sources, install temporary safeguards, including extinguishers and smoke alarms, make minor repairs to safety systems, and to add um, fire suppression systems and, and other measures. So there were alternatives that, in my opinion, were not given to council and were not, um, and, and I, I question why those alternatives were not explored by the fire chief. Um, when the order was issued on August 2nd, after the second fire, there were also, and the, the order was issued under section 21, where there is an option to demolish, but under that same section, there's other numerous options as well about securing and structural and repairs and suppression systems. And all of those alternatives were on the table. And again, uh, not, uh, not ordered. And so I do question why. Uh, and those are, I think, legitimate questions that the public has. And that public has asked those of me, and I don't have answers to that. Um, ultimately, the fire chief has the authority to issue an order. And on August 2nd, um, he issued that order. So the next, you know, step along the way, and because, uh, as you know, Adam, I have a kind of have a soft spot for, you know, old buildings and farmhouses. Um, one of the first things I did when when I got the FYI email on August, the, I think we got it August 2nd on the day the order was issued, is my spidey senses go up when I see a demolition <laughs> order. And I check the heritage register. It's, it's, it's something, I, the first thing I do is, is it a heritage building? Um, and if it is, you know, what's going on here? I checked the heritage register. I went to the, the public website uh, and I looked at the heritage register and it wasn't there. I had that same problem, by the way, because I, I, I on on that council night, the 27th, I looked it up and it wasn't there. And it's because it was misnumbered. It was, had right. the wrong street number. Yeah. So I didn't think twice about it, actually. I kind of moved on and didn't think about it. And until, the, you know, it showed up on the 27th agenda and it and between August second august 2nd and september 27th why wasn't it on the committee of the whole why didn't it go to heritage guelph why didn't a public report come out um why weren't those further alternatives explored i think if it had been public i think we would have had those eyes on the street hmm. so you know when it got to the 27th there was a lot of of other information that you know i don't think we made a fully informed decision not just on what other alternatives were available but we were when we when we looked at it um we were advised that if the municipality were to take ownership of those actions that the cost would be borne by the municipality and that that is not uh, the case as well, because there's a section of the act that specifically says that the fire uh, chief um, can recover the costs from the property owner. So 
any any um, member of council who was making their decision based on the fact that they thought that the cost would be borne by the taxpayers of Guelph. Um, I don't believe that that information was was correct. But again, that's subject to. Um, I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on here, right? Yeah. I mean, it's layers and layers and layers. And then there's the whole governance about reconsideration. And then there's the governance issue about, you know, why we're enclosed and why we can't issue reports and why Heritage Guelph wasn't consulted. I mean, there's layers and layers and layers here. And, and that's all after the fact. Let's talk about what, how we got here in 2017. Mm-hmm. We, we, this could all have been prevented. There were four years between the time that the house was... Um, 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 ceased to be tenanted where property standards weren't enforced and security wasn't enforced and sever and sell action was not pursued. So again, layers and layers and layers. And I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. I'm saying we're all culpable, including council and, and, and myself for not calling the closed session and the point of procedure. But honestly, Adam, I, I was, desperately looking for the sections of the act that I needed to, to, um, to quote in order to call those points of procedure. And I didn't have that information in front of me to be able to bring that up. I didn't have a copy of the motions in front of, in front of me on, on September 30th, because it was all verbal. So Mm. yeah, again, layers and layers and layers. So I would also say there is maybe some fault of of those of us in the media too, because the report makes clear there was an escalation. There was a barn that burned down in May. There was another outbuilding that burned down in August. And then, you know, I guess process of elimination because people have been, I guess, using these buildings to squat or, or or, I I hate that word, but there it is. Um, You know, we didn't draw that connection either that there was, a, th- this property filled with abandoned buildings and they were sort of being not purposefully taken out in a systemic fashion, but they were being systemically taken out. This was like the next domino to fall in yeah. a sort. And the escalation of measures after the first fire didn't happen. Property standards didn't issue an order to secure the buildings and the additional regulation, the additional options under section 15 to eliminate immediate risk of, of, uh, a fire weren't, weren't enacted. So, yeah, I mean, uh, like I said, it's, it's layers. It's, it's, um, I think the important thing is it, because of emotion, we're all looking for, you know, who's responsible, who can, who can we blame? And uh, I don't think there will be a full answer to that. I think it's more about uh, accountability Mm. versus blame and account accountability is a process. It's uh, accountability is, um, matching uh, policy uh, to action. Did we follow our policies? And if we didn't follow our policies, we've got some splaining to do. Yeah. Looking at the bigger issues, though, I mean, demolition by neglect, this is not the first time, you know, a, a building has been like to the cusp of like being destroyed on its own. And, and there's a risk of, you have to destroy the building or it will get destroyed. And if it's, if, if it's something that happens, um, someone might get hurt or first responders might get hurt. I want to address though, this is kind of a, one of these kind of rural versus urban situations, right? Because we have the drill hall, which is currently in the process of being stabilized, uh, the process of trying to get saved. 
But I mean, that's right in the downtown core, almost literally across the road from City Hall. It's a little bit different for things like the Short Reed Farmhouse or a lot of these few surviving farmhouses that are like out in the middle of nowhere where there are like maybe there's a street, but it's, you know, basically just a paved <laughs> paved road and that nobody ever goes down. I, I guess are, are there two tiers of heritage in Guelph where like the stuff we can see every day gets saved, like the, the Petri building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the stuff that's sort of out of sight is out of mind, at least until it's on the brink of destruction. Mm-hmm. Um, it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be because our cultural and architectural heritage belongs to all of us, no matter where it's located within the city limits and, and the stories they tell, even, even your humble farmhouse tells a story in this particular case, heritage planning staff reviewed it and it met all of the criteria for designation. And in the report, they recommend designation. So the recommendations do not actually align with our, our heritage planning staff and and the you can secure a vacant building. Mm-hmm. Those buildings had inhabitants right up until a time that a conscious decision was made to board them up. And in some t- cases, and, and I know that our CAO said that this was a you know an isolated and unusual case. And I, I wish that were true, but I can count a long list of rural properties that have fallen victim to fire or structural damage due to demolition by neglect. Uh, some of them are in development areas, uh, um, uh, Clare Road Farmhouse, the Tolton Adams Farmhouse, the Eustace Farmhouse, the McWilliams Farmhouse. Uh, the Wilson Farmhouse was in a development area, but development happened around it. That was a city-owned building. So they do, the, uh, 264 Crawley is, is still standing, thankfully, and is going to Committee of Adjustment for doctor's offices. That's excellent. Adaptive reuse, we should talk about that. Uh, because that adaptive reuse is the is the saving grace for any heritage. And in every case, in my opinion, the the boarding up was to prepare to was to um, secure for a future use. Mm. Um, that in many cases there was an intended future use, um, but minimal services were not maintained. And yet the fire promotion and uh, prevention and protection act actually says minimal and our vacant property standards bylaw section four does say that minimal services for life safety must be maintained in the buildings so there are ways to prevent those rural resources no matter how isolated or how neglected to be conserved um as well why not tenant them right up until the Mm. point of of development why not tenant them while you're preparing severance or official plan amendments um, that's revenue and it keeps the buildings intact and it provides housing. Is that not a, I was going to say, I mean, it, it is also a liability, but it, it, it is also sort of like one of these things because it, it, it keeps coming up when we're talking about affordable housing at council that there's no, the city doesn't have a housing department. And so that sort of things, if we had a housing department, that sort of what simplifies things that falls under the housing department. But since we don't, we can't. And it's creating a whole city department from scratch. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but the GRCA um, has a long, they acquired these properties in the 1970s for the, uh, the creation of Gulf Lake and the, and the dam. And they have multiple properties that they have tenanted over the years, right up until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, even there was even a, a property um, um like all along Conservation Road and Watson Road, they own numerous properties and they have tenanted properties from the seventies right through till today. 
so why this one? Uh, why, why did the tenancy end on this one? Why didn't they get a new tenant? Um, and if they were interested, as I understand they were, in severing and selling because it was a surplus, uh, a surplus property, uh, and severance and sell adds money to their coffers, easily a million dollars in my estimation could have, could have gone into the GRCA coffers had this proceeded. Um, so how could the city have facilitated the severance, severance and sale? How could uh, the GRCA not have tenanted until that process played itself out? There's, again, layers and layers of questions about how we got here in the first place. And those are just some of the questions that I had along the way. <sighs> Is that going to be an open process? The review of, yeah. this, of this issue? Um, yeah. I expect, I mean, our CAO, um, he has committed to doing uh, an audit of how we got here, what happened, uh, how we can strengthen our policies. Um, you know, he's committed. He said publicly that he does never want to see this happen again. Um I hope it's a public process. I'm meeting with the CAO uh, on the 21st of October, and I've got a long list of coulda, shoulda, coulda, shouldas. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I, I don't, I, I think until we get answers and we rebuild the public trust, it's our job to steward heritage resources. This isn't just a, you know, nice little, oh, save a building here and save a building there. This is our legislated authority under the Ontario Heritage Act. It's embedded in our official plan. It's embedded in our strategic plan. We have an obligation to the public to be good stewards um, of our cultural heritage. And we need to rebuild the public trust that we are doing our jobs. Um, we also need to um, make sure staff have the resources. So if this, if this turns out to be a resource issue, mm. that staff were not able to do their jobs because they didn't have the, the resources, whether monetary or human, to, to um, protect this property, then we need to see that in the budget. And we need to see that in the budget next month, not next year. We need to, we need to make sure that, this, uh, um, that the heritage file um, uh, remains uh, properly resourced. So there's a lot of a lot of things that need to be examined here. On the governance issue, why did it go into closed? Mm. Uh, why did the motion of reconsideration, which was clearly as the mover of the motion, um, uh, intended to suspend the procedural bylaws? Why was the Heritage Act um, violated? And uh, we are still in violation of the Heritage Act, by the way. Um, whether there's consequences to that, there's certainly consequences listed in the Act, um, whether that goes anywhere. Um, those are all unanswered questions. Uh, I suspect that a member of the public is going to demand answers to those questions, and those can all be addressed through either the Integrity Commissioner uh, the closed meeting investigator or the Ontario Ombuds Office. So there are recourses for the public to get those answers. Um, I think moving forward, Adam, um, I always like to think that something good comes out of, out of a challenge like this. And so that will be my focus moving forward is that, um, is that there's a, a learning and uh, improvement um, that will ensure that public trust is rebuilt on this file. I have two more questions. I, I hope we can get to them quickly. But number one is the issue of resources was kind of already addressed 
a committee this past week. Um, I believe staff, I can't remember who exactly, but made the point that most of the city's focus when it comes to asset management is the assets that the city is using. And then whatever's left over goes to sort of the underutilized assets or the, the properties that are not, don't have a use right now. Don't we already know that resources are a problem? Yes, our corporate asset management, that was a huge red flag for me. So thank you for picking up on that because um, um, our real estate assets that are not currently being used, if not conserved and maintained, will never ever get to the point of having a future use. Uh, so we need to make sure that those are included in our corporate asset management and put resources to them. And thankfully, we did at Committee of the Whole, we did put money towards them. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that that's um, loud and clear. And so the other question is, uh, for people who've kind of seen what's happened play out over the last couple of weeks, what assurances are there that... I guess to put it bluntly, like how can people trust that council is making thorough, well-researched, well-regarded decisions in camera um, if, you know, we have two emergency meetings to basically try and understand what happened in camera? That is the toughest question of all to answer. Um, it is up to your members of council and your mayor to uh, ensure that we are operating under our code of conduct. And you've raised an interesting question because how will the public ever know whether or not we are uh, operating under our code of conduct if they can't see that? Um, I know that I will commit to raising the alarm when necessary, as I said, 99% of the time. I, um, I, we are operating uh, as we should, as your board of directors, uh, under the bylaws of procedural bylaws of our city. Um, uh, for the one percent of time where there that may be in question, each of us as individuals has an obligation to raise that and um, question that. All right. We will have to leave that there, uh, but we appreciate your obligation to come on Open Sources and talk about all this stuff. Uh, Leanne Caron, thank you so much for all your time today. Thanks, Adam. You always ask great questions and you always challenge me. So anytime. And there you go. That was uh, a little spicy. Uh, hot times at City Hall. Eh? Oh, ooh, it's the hottest. Um, it's just, you know, it's too bad we're all still... Um, virtual so i can't watch counselors give each other the cold shoulder and or get all lobster faced while arguing a point right yeah 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 and see mm. who see who's like hanging out with who after a closed session and who who might have stepped on whose toes mm, i do enjoy that. the last egg salad sandwich oh yes I do oh no the platters were canceled more than we can yes yeah, this is yeah. inside baseball, I guess, stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's hard to gossip anymore. Sadly, <laughs> that is where we'll have to leave today's show. Uh, if you liked the show, we hope you did. You can stay connected to us at our website, opensourcesguelph.com. We're on Facebook at Open Sources Newswire, and we're on Twitter at OS underscore Guelph. 
If you'd like to listen to the show again, you can download it from our website every Monday. You can get it at the Guelph Politicast channel on Podbean or through your favorite podcast app at Apple, Stitcher, Google, or Spotify. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Adam A. Donaldson, or you can find my news and politics site at guelphpolitico.ca. I'm Scotty Hertz on Facebook, Scotty Hertz on Twitter, and for all the hot goss about radio and CFRU, check out CFRU.ca for scheduling information and all that great stuff. Hot goss. Oh, boy. Uh, DJ Sounds Good to Me is here at the top of the hour on CFRU 93.3 FM, CFRU.ca, Guelph Campus and Community Radio. We'll be back, of course, next Thursday at 5 p.m. for more hot goss on Open Sources. (laughs) And we will see you then.